Reminder again, Gustavo will be doing the membership vows next Sunday afternoon, evening. And we will be on vacation for the week, so if you call me, I may not answer the phone. (laughs) That's all the announcements. We have the call to worship. Praise waiteth for thee, for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. Let us bow hearts and heads in sign of preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 236, 236.
Let us pray. We praise you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, indeed, for the great things you have bestowed upon us through redemption, through the covenant of salvation and grace bestowed upon us, God, and given to us day by day. We thank you for this day in which we can gather together together to give you, give you, Lord God above, great glory indeed. Help us, we pray, to focus upon you and to be encouraged by your gospel call. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go ahead and sing hymn 181.
We do bring our homage before you, God Almighty, knowing that all that we have is indeed yours. We do not have it as such, but rather we are stewards, Lord, thankful for the many blessings you've given us, things that we can enjoy for ourselves and our families, Lord, and many things that we are given to uh, give to others, Lord, and to use responsibly for the kingdom of God. We pray in particular, Lord, as we live in this day and age before uh, the new heavens and the new earth in which we have to deal with money and work and economies, God, that you would be with us, especially with the poor and the poor and the churches in particular, God, with the difficulties we have in our economy, with the inflation that we are facing, God, uh, as well as uh, the lack of living wage jobs. Uh, Lord, it's a chronic problem, and more and more workers are pulling back from the current jobs they had, Lord, wanting uh, better hours and better pay, God. Uh, we pray, Lord, for indifferent employers, if that's a problem, God, where uh, companies uh, can give more but don't want to give more, but rather squeeze the last dime, Lord, for their own gain. And we pray, God, that these things would change, that uh, the employers and employees, Lord, would follow the relationship that has been done uh, throughout uh, thousands of years, Lord, especially in the Christian churches, but not uniquely, in which businesses are considered family in the best sense of the word, Lord, where the bosses look upon their employees as members that they wish to take care of and help them progress through life, God, instead of this antagonistic approach that we've had for a long time in our economy. We ask God for uh, also maintaining of law and order at the border, uh, for the control therein, Lord, and as well, in particular, God, the United States of America would focus their efforts upon the poor of our own country, upon those who are in disability and difficulties. And we think of those who are in the military, God, and all those wars we've had, Lord, and they are suffering and they need help themselves, God, and that we would take care of our own as we are called in accordance to your word and the priorities of love that we are given. We ask, God, also that you would be with our presbytery in particular, that you would be with the churches and the committees, God, in particular, Lord, for the leadership of the churches, that they would stand firm against the spirit of the age, the pastors would continue to preach the law and gospel and the fullness of the word of God to the people and feed them in Jesus Christ and apply the word of God faithfully and carefully to the consciences at hand, that the members of the church would be drawn unto Christ and to each other and unto the leadership, Lord, that those churches would grow in our presbyteries, God, both numerically and especially spiritually, Lord, and growth, the fruit of the Spirit and sanctification. We pray for the efforts of the committees of the presbytery, God, that they would prove, prove fruitful uh, for what they are there, Lord, to help members of the church, to help uh, the poor, uh, to help with missions, God, uh, to help with ministers and instruction therein and encouragement, God. We ask that you would help our presbytery do the right thing, uh, no matter what is going on in their midst, Lord, that they would move forward together in unison in accordance to truth and your word. We pray not only for our presbytery, Lord, we pray for the various presbyteries of our denomination that we are covenanted with, Lord, that we would pray for them. And although we don't know all their names, certainly, God, but we know that they are a part of us and we are a part of them. We are connected. And we pray, God, the same for them, that their churches would grow, that they would grow in faithfulness to your word, that the pastors would stand firm and protect the flock, and that the members would grow and turn the, and in turn love one another and love the leadership, God, and they would all grow in the fruits of the Spirit and that their committees, God, and the men and the ruling elders and sometimes deacons uh, would get work done as needed, help them, Lord, to give them wisdom and insights and resources to do what needs to be done at the regional level, that is, the presbyteries, God. We pray not only for ours, but also for our sister denominations and their presbyteries, God, that you would also be with them. Uh, That is the backbone of Presbyterianism, God, where ministers are ordained, not at the local church, not at the general assembly, God, but there at the presbytery. And, and from that perspective, Lord, is very important, has much power and weight. We ask, God, that they would have the insight and understanding 
to examine the ministers and to keep an eye on the ministers that are already ordained and in their and their influence, Lord, sphere of influence, uh, that they would watch over them and help them maintain purity of doctrine and of practice as well. We ask in particular, God, that your spirit would be with us this week and that we would be encouraged this evening, God, to know that you're with us and we have our callings and vocations in life and we deal with them one day at a time and that we would not come into this week discouraged but rather encouraged knowing that you are with us, God, no matter what and that if we fall down, you are there, Lord, to forgive us of our sins, Lord, and also to give us in your providence help from one another for various other reasons, perhaps why we have fallen, Lord, through ignorance or confusion or just accidents, God, and that we would get up and continue on and do what we are called to do, Lord, not listening uh, to uh, the lies of the devil or the world that tells us to slow down, to turn around, and to leave the godly vocations of which you've called us. Help us, we pray, Lord, to grow close to you by your grace alone, we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thank you, God, again for the tithes and offerings that we're able to give back to you for the work of the kingdom. In your name alone we pray that it would be used mightily. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to drill down into verses 15 and 16, the famous verses that you're aware of, especially verse 15. We covered this section. <clears throat> Uh, last week, 13 to 18. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Let us pray. We ask God that we be encouraged to continue on in our Christian life, to know that we are called and therefore equipped for where you have called us in your word, Lord. You've equipped us by your grace to sanctify you in our hearts to the extent, Lord, that we are ready to give an answer to everyone who asks of the reason of the hope that is in us, God, with a good conscience, doing good works and doing what we are called to do in our callings and vocations in life, God, no matter what the world may decry us as. Help us, we pray, to continue to be encouraged therein, Lord, to know that you are with us and you're equipping us. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Like in the early church, today we face much ignorance about Christianity. This is one reason why I went through First uh, Peter, because he has a similar situation 
to what we have today. He's dealing with Christians in a pagan world being persecuted, laughed at, scoffed at, or whatever the case is, certainly outnumbered and outgunned. We are turning full circle, it seems, to such a world again. Because of that ignorance that they had back then and we have today of Christianity, we are often accused of various made-up sins, for example. We are called racists, perhaps, or we are called women-haters, or we are called bigots, and you can fill in the blank. But sometimes people see how we live anyways, pay attention and don't listen to those lies and ask, why? What reason compels you to follow Jesus? Why do you worship him? Why do you go out to church on Sundays? Why don't you curse and use foul language like the rest of us? Or whatever it is, Peter's not specific, so I'm giving you some examples to flush it out. That, that, that circumstance, when that happens, that's when apologetics comes in, right? Apologetics is to give a defense. That the word here in the Greek, to give a defense or an answer, depending on the translation, of the hope that is within us. It is the answer of the hope within us. It is giving reason to what we do and what we believe. Every Christian is called to do this. And so, to help us to this end, when called upon in these circumstances, I compose this sermon to further strengthen our efforts in this matter, to teach us what it means to give an answer of the hope and some particular ways in which we can do that. The first point you heard somewhat last week, and I'll expand it in a different direction. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. See, there are three main ideas here, but sanctify, always be ready, and have a good conscience. To sanctify, of course, as you know, means to set aside, to make unique and holy in this case God, as only He can be set aside and, and called holy in our hearts. And always be ready. I, I tie it to that passage, that rest of the verse, to be ready. That is, to sanctify God is to know Him and to love Him and be prepared to defend Him in the sense of giving an answer of the hope. Obviously, at the end of the day, God will always defend Himself most perfectly. What ways do we sanctify the Lord in our hearts so that we can give an answer of the hope within us? We do this when we understand the Lord as the Holy Trinity. To set God aside means to set aside who He is, that is, to set Him aside as holy, not set Him aside as, oh, whatever, off to the side, I'm, not, I'm indifferent to Him, but rather, He is so special that I want to believe everything there is about Him, to know more about Him, to understand, and to learn more about Him. That's part of the idea of sanctify. You cannot sanctify in ignorance, obviously. You must have knowledge, and that knowledge is the holy knowledge of the Word of God that teaches us that there is one holy trinity. The whole truth of God is what we need to be sanctified and to set aside for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God and three divine persons. In these two simple passages, you know many of the passages, we've gone over some of this on Wednesday night in the past, uh, you can find more or ask me for more, a good systematic theology. But I think these are helpful because, one, uh, they mirror one another, these two passages, and two, uh, they're similar chapter designations, so it makes it easier to remember. Why make it hard on yourself when you can have helpful ways of getting Bible text or biblical truth in a simple capitalized form? And so here we have Genesis 1-1 and then John 1-1. Two passages that clearly show us a trinity. 
in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 in particular, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We must believe this. And believing, we are sanctifying the Lord in our hearts. We are setting aside this holy truth and saying, this is important. I, I believe this and I want to stand firm and be able to give an answer of the hope of this truth. In verse 2 we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The one thing to note, of course, is that in the beginning, God, right? God is there. It, there's no argument for God the Father. There's no argument for His existence. He is simply there. He must of necessity be there, and everything else hinges upon that fact in the Bible. There's no argument, no defense in that sense of apologetics, for God's existence. It's assumed in the Bible. When Jesus comes along, he gives arguments, he gives evidence, because something has changed, of course, and God has become man in flesh, and he's fulfilling prophecy. But here, God is there in the beginning of Genesis, and then the Spirit is there. Again, in the beginning, God, and the whole dot, 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 and the Spirit of God. Well, he's just assumed. Where'd he come from? (laughs) There he is in the Bible. Trinity is there in the Old Testament without the New Testament. And I can certainly give you more texts, but this is one of uh, very, I think it seems to me, very obvious texts that we have two things going on here. The Father and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's there at the beginning of creation. How can he be there unless he himself is God? Unpacking in Corinthians where Paul argues it's the Spirit who knows the depths of the Lord. And illuminates it for us. And how can the Spirit plumb the depths of God unless He Himself is infinite? Because God is infinite. John 1 1, as you know, is a well known passage for the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is the third member of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on, as you know, through the rest of John, and he, the Word took on flesh, that is, Jesus the Christ. The Blessed One. So, to sanctify God is to sanctify Him not in the abstract. To sanctify the Lord God in your hearts is to set aside who He is. That means we have to have the proper knowledge of who He is if we're going to believe and believe unto a saving faith. Not just as a Trinity, but also as a Savior. Not just one who's created all things and spoke all things into existence, as we read in Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, but also He who delivers, he who saves, he who rescues us from our sins and from Satan and from this world. Remember, people can believe in God and yet not believe he saves anybody. I don't know how well spread that idea is. The deist had something like that back during Jefferson's day. Jefferson himself was a deist. But you have things like that, I'm sure, in the churches and around, and people who aren't in the church. So, sure, I believe in God. I've talked to people. Yeah, I believe in God. Okay, so now what? Well, he's, he's up in the sky. He's doing interesting things, and I'm doing my own thing. Okay. I mean, most Americans, as much as we hear about the rising tide of atheism, the vast majority of Americans, what, 90, 95% or something, are religious of some sort. They'll say spiritual or religious or even Christian, although those numbers are dwindling because they cannot eradicate the image of God in them as much as they try, and they know there is a Lord. But we know more. We know that he's a saving Lord. As we heard in Sunday school class with Elder Martin, unlike 
Briggs, who was tried and found guilty in 1893 or whatever, we know redemption through the Word of God, not because of other religions, not because we count the constellations and the stars above. We find it here and only here that Jesus is Lord. To sanctify him, to sanctify the Bible as well, that is to set it aside and learn and grow thereby. And in particular, I'll put these two points together, or sub-points. The Lord saves, the Lord is a Savior, and the triune Lord is seen in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, as you've heard before. It's a wonderful text. It's one long sentence in the Greek. And it's clearly divided into three sections. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's God. It's the Father. He has blessed us. He's blessed us in Christ. Father, Christ, or Son. Father and Son. Just as He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And he continues on expounding upon what Christ has done for us. He's died for us, and we've been adopted, we've been saved, and we've been delivered from transgressions of sins by Christ. It's the Father, and then it's the Son. And then the last few verses, uh, 13 and 14, we have, In whom also, having believed, that is in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Father, Son, and now the Holy Spirit, each playing a role in your redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth. This is what it means to sanctify the Lord in your hearts. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how they have saved you. The Father, what, arranging redemption from eternity past. The Son, accomplishing redemption in time and space. And the Holy Spirit, applying redemption to our hearts in the here and now. Because we are time-bound creatures, God has enacted those roles that each member of the Trinity would do what they promised to do in the covenant of redemption to save their people from their sins. Praise the Lord. And then I want to highlight the most obvious thing, but sanctify the Lord God. He is Lord. He is Master. He is one we have to bow down to. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. They are to save us, and they have saved us, and they're also our Lord, not just our Savior. Just what it means as the Lord tells us how to live, guides and protects us. Too many unbelievers want saving from the bad fruit of their sinful decisions and choices. Whoop, didn't like how that went. Somebody help me. Maybe Christianity can help me, because unfortunately, sometimes Christians give the wrong impression by saying, God will take care of all your problems when what God will take care of are your real problems, that is the problems that send you to hell, your sins. Other problems may be taken care of in his providence, maybe not. But as Lord, we are called to submit to him regardless. Many unbelievers want their own rules and their own ways and saying, I can go to heaven, but I still want to do what I want to do. The pagans in Peter's time didn't want to give up their immorality. Many today don't want to give up their immorality either. Worship on Sunday, they don't want to love their wives anymore, or their husbands anymore. Divorce is often initiated by women, unfortunately, these days. Obeying their husbands, controlling their tongues, whatever the problem is, the unbeliever doesn't want to do it. But they're called to do it. To be saved is to have God as not only your Savior, but your Lord and Master. He guides you and directs you in your call of sanctification, as we heard about this morning, through the law of God. 
And that's hard. When we preach the gospel, part of what we do is what Christ said. What do you say? He said, take my yoke upon me. It is light compared to the yoke of the world. The, the yoke, in this case, of the hypocritical Pharisees. But the world sees God's law as a heavy burden and don't want to submit to it. Sanctify the Lord is to treat all that there is about the Lord our God as special and as holy, such that, or to the end that, we can give an answer of the hope that is within us. You cannot give an answer of who God is if you don't know who's the Trinity. You cannot give an answer of who God is if you don't know he saves you. You cannot give an answer of who the Lord is if you don't even know he's Lord, but you just think he's just a big Santa Claus up there for you. And I know that's not our particular problem, so when I say you, I don't mean all you, but uh, these are the things we have to be aware of and our society, and resist such temptations in our lives. So the second point, answering of the hope in you. Answering of the hope in you. Now he says, of course, it's a little longer sentence structure here. And always be ready to give an answer or defense to everyone who asks you of the reason for the hope that is in you. To be ready. Now, when he says to be ready to give an answer of the hope within you, I think he means to be ready to give a simple answer. You don't have to sit there for nine hours into a deep philosophical debate with somebody. That's not what he's saying. Uh, like you, the early Christians were busy. Many were slaves, uh, servants of rich households and like. They weren't all businessmen or something or, and rich middle class people like we have in America. Uh, but they worked and worked very hard and they don't have time to dig into big philosophical debates and get these big, thick apologetic books No, they just gave a simple answer to simple questions as best they could. Certainly, I'm sure they quoted the Word of God. But it could happen, of course. It's happened to me and some people before, but that's not what we're called to do. But ready to give an answer to basic questions. Who is God? Who is this Jesus? What is heaven? What is the salvation you speak of? Personal testimonies, of course, can be included in that. That's very easy. It doesn't have to be exciting things where, you, you know, like when I grew up in those circles, you always hear these exciting stories of this guy, you know, he's on the drug skid row. And No, I, I grew up, God was good to me, and he gave me a family that loved me and taught me these things, and I love the Lord Jesus. Here's some Bible verses. <laughs> Read a Bible verse, that's it. I mean, he doesn't give specifics. We don't have to fill it in with all these uh, heavy burdens anymore as such. But, of course, to whom much is given, much is required. If you do and are able to, to some extent, give a little better answer, a little longer answer, you've studied a little more, you've been well instructed, then you can give a better answer, good. Do it, use it, and leave it in God's hands. You know you can't change hearts, but you know God can still use your words to bring conviction and change. And that's our prayer. To be ready, right? When it's called, when the circumstance comes, maybe you get a heads up. Often we do. We know we go to work and people kind of ask some leading questions. You know, that's going to come to you, so be prepared when those happen. To give an answer of the hope. An answer to everyone who asks you a reason. For the hope. So it's in particular, not just give an answer, but give an answer of the reason. What reasons do you have, right? That word apologetic, there's specifically a semi-legal term. What defense are you going to give before the judge? What are your reasons that you can convince me, perhaps? And so I want to go over three different subjects or different ways of things you can talk about in apologetics. One is the object of our hope, Christ and salvation in heaven. Two is the basis of our hope, the gospel promise. We, we know we want heaven because we've heard the truth of the good news of the gospel and the word of God. And then, of course, the foundation of that hope, the Bible. 
where we hear the good news that tells us about our hope that is Christ in heaven. So the object of our hope, salvation, this is what we long for. This is what we're looking forward to. That's our object, salvation in Christ Jesus. And of course, I want to have three different audiences here. So in this case, the audience would be against the pagans or contra-pagans and their little false gods. And pastor, why are you talking about pagans? We don't have pagans anymore. We don't? I don't, I don't know. We are reverting. Uh, what we thought were Christians, a lot of them are very much, I don't know what anymore. Uh, mainline churches, as you know, many of them gone really loopy. They have, uh, I remember what was in the, about 10 years ago, one of the mainline churches, the big ones, they have all the money now, although they're dying. They would have a pagan worship service at the General Assembly. I want to say it was a Presbyterian one. I don't remember for a fact, but yeah, it could have been a Methodist or something. Crazy things like that. You're like, what? Okay, Pastor, I got your point, right? <laughs> something weird is going on here. And there has been a, wa- a rise of witchcraft, for example, in America. And spiritualism, that's why I mentioned the word spiritual. People will now more say, more than, more people will now say they're spiritual than they have in the past, according to the Barnum numbers, than, than just simply religious. Because religious tends to, uh, denote organization. And they don't like organization. That's too restrictive, you know, restrictive for us. We don't want, we want the freedom to find God in our own way and have these happy feelings. Spiritualism, which is just one step away from paganism. And I use the word paganism as a descriptive, uh, not a slur. Only Christ. The the spiritualists in America don't want to hear that. You're going to run across them. They're going to say, well, there's other ways to heaven, right? Isn't God a loving God? Isn't he Santa Claus up there? Our God is also a just God. Don't you believe in justice, right? Aren't you the ones who want justice in America? What kind of a God are you going to worship if you don't think he takes justice seriously? So you you can play that angle. Because, you know, most of them are going to talk about, I believe in social justice. Okay, does your God believe in social justice? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on who you're talking to. But our answer, of course, is only Christ. Not just any God or whoever you think is defined as God, but Christ Jesus of the Word of God. I mean, we have four books dedicated to his life and ministry, right? The Gospels, they're called. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ask him, have you read the Bible? Okay, yeah, what have you read? Well, I read this passage, maybe this book or whatever. You might even have to ask what translation. I don't know what they even, if they even know what a Bible is anymore. I don't, I don't know what they've read. So we're in, we're in strange times uh, right now with some of these things. Every uh, book of the New Testament mentions Christ at least once explicitly or implicitly, even the small little um, epistles of the New Testament. And of course, the hope of our salvation, which is Christ, and to be saved by grace and not by our own works and the like, is emphasized all over the Bible, and again, especially in the New Testament, but not uniquely. It's just especially highlighted uh, there because the greater revelation of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. All these other religions, the pagan religions of the world, uh, cults, right, Mormons and the like, Seventh-day Adventists, they play around and don't believe in the Christ of the Bible and therefore have a different view of salvation. I mean, it's all of a piece. If you deny Christ, you deny that you're saved by grace, and you deny uh, that you're not saved by works, which is to say they believe you're saved by works, usually some kind of works, usually something that you have done. The, the world today, the religions of today, the spiritualists of today have sin and have redemption. All sin is often is, of course, redefined as like bad things in this world. 
things that are uncomfortable. We've got to somehow get beyond that, like in the Eastern you know, Hinduism and whatnot, want nirvana, and get, get, get beyond what is the bad things of this world, although they may not use the word sin. But they have something to get away from the bad things of this world, something we would call in our theology redemption. And it's never, ever faith alone in Christ alone on account of uh, faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Never, 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 never. They can't, because that's only found in the Bible. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it's by grace alone that gives us the power to believe either. It's not about your free will, the power of the will, your ability, your, your, how smart you are, how well-connected you are. None of that. Not what you have done, but what Christ has done. And that makes all the difference in the world. So you go to those Bible texts. I gave you some of those. I'm going to give you more as we go here to the basis of hope. Not just the object of hope, which is heaven, which is Christ, that he is our redeemer. And all the passages you can look up, Christ, 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 Christ is the center of our religion. The basis of our hope, that is, how do we know about Jesus and salvation and heaven, but because of the gospel promise? And all the false religions of the world, again, deny that. To attack the one is to attack the other, of course. You attack our object, you attack the basis of our hope, you attack the basis of our hope, the gospel promise, you attack the object of our hope, Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, so here we have, again, more passages of Christ, because all these themes are interwoven in the theology of the Bible. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You just read that text, and people will scream, no, that's crazy, how can you believe that? Or, in the case of the Roman Catholics and cults, they're like, yeah, I believe that, I agree with that, Uh uh-huh. And, of course, you dig in, you find out, well, it's not faith alone. It's not Christ alone. And it's not grace alone. It's something else that you have done. Your baptism, the Lord's Supper, being a member of the Roman Catholic Church. We read here that a man is not justified by the works of the law. It's not moral perfection that brings us to heaven, but by faith, believing, trusting, and relying upon Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, for by works of the law no flesh shall be justified or declared righteous in God's law courts. That's it. Just read that text. Maybe put it down in Galatians 2.16. It talks about Christ. It talks about faith. It talks about works not saving you. That's a lot right there. That's part of the apologetics. Giving an answer of the hope in you. Here it is. Brother, sister, member of the family, longtime friend. And, of course, when you say these things, you don't imitate your pastor and hammer down and yell real loud or anything. I'm preaching to you. Uh, but you can just read calmly, and they might not go anywhere. They might say, oh, let me, okay, that's kind of interesting. You might not hear anything for several years, and it's very frustrating. You feel like you've got to sit there on your hands because they don't ever bring up the topic again. Or they might bring it up. I don't know. Peter doesn't deal with that because he knows how life is. He's just simply saying, this is what you're called to do. When it comes up, can you give an answer and say, this is what the Bible says? This is what the Bible says. Nothing more fancy than that. You don't have to think you're Paul or somebody. Romans 4.6 is another passage about faith in Christ, about being saved only in Christ, about being saved by faith and the gospel promise, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. 
God imputes righteousness. He declares in the law courts that we are righteous apart from how good and how well we've obeyed the law. How can that be? Because it's by Christ alone. It's it's imputed to us by faith because we believe in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And again, Ephesians 2.8. Galatians 2.16 is a good one. Ephesians 2.8 is a smaller one. That's another good one. Although Christ isn't mentioned explicitly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, how many times does the Bible have to say it before it sinks in to our hearts? It should be only once. But he does it over and over again because God is a patient God. Not only the object of our hope do we give an answer for, and I gave you some texts, and of course just all of the New Testament and prophecies of the Old Testament you can go through. Basis of our hope, again, everywhere you read about the gospel of believing in him and being justified by faith alone. And the foundation of our hope, the Bible. That's where often it gets kind of interesting with us. This is contra the atheists and the liberals. Right? Not just the pagans who have no uh, identification with us or completely different religions or the spiritualists. Or of the Roman Catholics, and the second point, the basis of our hope, where they talk about a gospel, but they play around with the gospel, and they add things to Jesus, and Jesus hasn't done enough, and, and the like. Here we have people have so very little in common with us. And what they go after is the Bible often. They'll just say, forget the object of your hope. Forget the basis of your hope. Where does that all come from? Oh, yeah, the Bible. I attack the Bible, I attack everything else, and I'm going to take you down. That's how they think. That's how the liberals think, and that's how the atheists think. And by liberals, I mean theological liberals of the churches. Now, often in the case of the uh, liberals, the classic liberals, the modern liberals, I don't know as much anymore, but we're going in history class with uh, Elder Martin, and he's talking about uh, the liberals back then. They're still around to some extent. They, they'll, they'll, they'll say, I believe in the Bible. I believe something in the Bible. Maybe they believe... Paul existed. This kind of this bare minimal stuff often. Uh, they cherry pick a lot of times. But what they do because of that, the reason why they do that is because they don't believe the Bible is genuine enough. They'll say it's something in there, uh, in, in one theology, the Word of God is in it, but not really it itself. You have to have an existential counter with it. Or they'll say, we just don't really have the Bible. What we have is probably corrupted, but we think we could find good things. If you train me enough and give me to the right seminaries, I will find, I will be your rabbi and find the good stuff in this corrupted work. More or less is how liberals function. I mean, they're still there. They're still going to attack it today. And so I want to just highlight this. It's not going to be an apologetic course, but um, I found this chart. I've heard these things before. Dr. Kopp has had all this stuff, but he didn't have it written out. I found a chart. This is very helpful. These very same people, the atheists, the liberals, and the like today, progressives, believe the works of Plato are authentic. Believe the works of Aristotle are authentic. Do you know that? Right? These are old Greek philosophers, and nobody reads them anymore. But they'll say, oh, we have them. They're authentic. But wait a minute. Plato, they have seven copies of of what Plato has said that are 1,200 years beyond the original version. The copies they have, we have copies of Plato's original works, the original works are gone, and the copies we have are 1,200 years beyond the original 
work itself. That's a big gap, right? Here's the original Plato work. It got lost in the flood or fire, whatever. And 1,200 years later, we find a copy. <laughs> and we're like, we have this copy. It's authentic. We know it's, it's a faithful replication of the original, although we don't have the original. It's authentic. Nobody's sitting there saying, are you really reading the real Plato? Everyone thinks we're reading the real Plato. Aristotle. They have 49 copies, and we're talking a 500-year difference. So about half. That's better, but still, 500 years. A lot happens in 500 years. How many people are going to, how many of you are going to rely on what I write, and you get a copy of it 500 years later, and be like, I, he, nah, I don't think it survived 500 years after the wars and tribulations and great mass migrations and everything else. It's not like today, brothers and sisters, you put it on the cloud and put it in the digital thing and you bear it in the ground. It's papers that dissolve real quickly, papyrus or whatever. We have 49 copies, and we are convinced that they are the authentic versions of the original, though we don't have the original. They are uh, trustworthy. It's a good word for it. I keep saying authentic. Trustworthy is a better word. These are trustworthy copies, and yet they are 500 years off from the original. But the New Testament has 24,000 copies at 40 to 70 years from the original. It's less than a generation. So what are you going to call authentic? What are you going to call more trustworthy? <laughs> you line them all up, and there they are. All the copies are all the same, all over the Mediterranean. Consistent accuracy among the copies. No other ancient book can boast these numbers. You can boast them today because it's easy to just digitize them, right? <laughs> and you copy. They didn't have that back then. Everything was painstakingly written out by the rabbis, by the Jews, Jewish scribes in particular. One letter, and they, had, they, had, they would verify, someone else come along and verify what they did to make sure every jot and tittle of the Hebrew is passed on. So, they are being most irrational. Often they don't just know these things. They just have a knee-jerk reaction. And you can give an answer. Remember, brothers and sisters, you give an answer. You give a reason. This is reasonable. If it's reasonable for Plato and Aristotle, off way to you, how much more reasonable is it for the Bible? We have that much more copies and that much closer to the original. But people are going to deny it right in front of your face. Don't let that destroy your faith, brothers and sisters. Don't let, this, that, let that destroy your hope. Oh, no, I gave a wonderful argument, and they just went, whatever, buddy. They're going to keep doing it. They are irrational in that, on that point. They may be a great, very smart engineer, maybe a very smart scientist, but on this point, when it comes to God and submitting to him, they become very irrational. And they will try to convince you that the argument that you have is actually reasonable. It's not reasonable. They're going to say, you're crazy. You're not crazy. They're the crazy ones. Thirdly, having a good conscience. Having a good conscience, not just giving an answer of the hope that is within us, not just sanctifying the Lord in our hearts, but having a good conscience. This is the context in which we are sanctifying and always being ready to give. An answer of the hope is we have a good conscience because we've done good. The whole point of chapter 2 and 3, I think last week I kept saying 3, it's also chapter 2 and 3, but the same idea goes to those two chapters, so in my, my head it's just the same idea. Look, the world's watching you, we saw in the beginning of chapter 2. And you are pilgrims on this earth. 
Don't act like an unbeliever. Don't sin just because you're saved. But rather, do good so that in the day of visitation, the unbelievers will rejoice, even though they slandered you. That's amazing. That's a promise, brothers and sisters. You realize that? That's not just him hoping. That's a promise. If they don't repent on the day of judgment, they are, their mouths will be shut. Because they'll, they'll, they'll know, they'll be exposed to the whole world that they're liars. And the Christians did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. So the whole point of 2 and 3 is to give them no excuse to, be, to do good to the nation, right? Submit to the magistrate. Do good to your company. Submit to your masters. Do good to your family. Uh, submit to your husbands and wives. Uh, honor your husbands. Honor your wives. And good to each other as the members of the body of Christ. The last few verses. And then we come to this section here. Doing good as a witness. Often people think of apologetics as intellectual arguments. Let's get together. We're going to have a big brouhaha down at the campus. I've been to a couple of those. I've, I've you know, preached down at the campus and witnessed and whatnot. Uh, that's not always what it is. In this case, Peter is describing apologetics triggered by good works, I think. He's certainly talking about good works here. Having a good conscience. You're, you're ready. You're going to give an answer. You're going to give a defense. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers... Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So works are talking about, he's talking about works, things that you've done, your conduct, even though you're giving an answer. So you may give an answer, and they may turn around and say, yeah, but you're a bigot. You hate women. What does that have to do with my defense of my faith? So there, maybe he's talking about people shifting the ground from a reason to how you're acting. Oh, sure, I sin, I'm inconsistent, but I tell you, that's my goal, this is what I want. Even unbelievers do that. They know they're inconsistent. This is what they want. That's their goal. Let's talk about that. No, but rather they want to attack and revile, slander your good conduct. And so we have a good conscience insofar as what? We have done good works. Uh, We are not what they claim we are. We do not hate women and the like, uh, but that doesn't mean we're going to play their game either. People watch us. Act like Christians and may ask questions. Why do you act like Christians? Why do you why are you gone on Sundays? I don't understand what's going on here. Why don't you curse, as I mentioned uh, earlier? That's a that's a big thing, I think. Why don't you talk like we do, and watch the things that we do, or make accusations, as Peter implies at the end there. Those who revile, uh, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evil doers, those who revile your good work conducts or good works in Christ may be ashamed. They revile you. They revile your stand on protecting babies. They revile your stand on the family and protecting the family. They revile your stand on protecting the Lord's Day. And many other Christians' beliefs and practices are poo-pooed and slandered. And Peter says, so be it. Just be able to give an answer to the hope, and then you're done. And they will give an account on the day when Christ returns. You don't have to enforce it. You can't make them repent. You can't make them believe. And you can't make them take back their lying words uh, often, although you can in our society if, if it's serious enough. Uh, but there, of course, they couldn't. I mean, the Christians had not, not much of a leg to stand on back then. They think it's laughable. They think we're ridiculous. But some may still ask questions, and we can give them an answer. Meanwhile, we can continue as good as citizens, as good workers, as good spouses, so that when they lie about us as families, as members of society, as employers and employees, the, lying will, the liars, they themselves, will be put to shame.
they may be ashamed. They will be ashamed. Some of them have been ashamed. Sometimes they've apologized in real life, and I pray that they will repent ultimately. But if not, they will repent before Christ. It was 1 Peter 2.12, By your good works, which they observe, they slander, and they lie, they glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep doing good, brothers and sisters. Keep standing for justice. Keep protecting the family. Keep honoring the Lord's day and His law. Keep submitting, as we are called in the great portion of this chapter and the prior chapter. Do the right thing and always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within us. In your name, God above, we pray. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for these words. We pray, Lord, for our souls to be encouraged and strengthened, God, that we have answers. We have the Bible. Just simply reading a Bible text can be sufficient at times to get people to think and to consider these matters, Lord, to illuminate them, perhaps, with the law of God. And whatever the case is, God, may we continue to have a good conscience because we have done good works, even though we may feel like we've not done good enough. It matters not insofar as Christ covers our sins and, and God is faithful and just to forget, not to forget our works uh, of obedience to you. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing 145D, Psalm 145D. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.